I remember going to ball games growing up. I had my glove on my left hand and a soft pretzel on my right. Was I going to catch a ball? Probably not. But you know who would? The ball hawk. Let's talk about it. Play ball! Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the Ball and Mitt Podcast, a willy-nilly talk show about baseball life and the occasional knee slapper. So grab your Cracker Jacks, sit back, and relax. It's gonna be a doozy. Here's your host, the Bees Knees himself, Brian Hey, baseball fans. I am your host, Brian Brammer, and this is the Ball and Mitt Podcast, Episode 2. Got a quick little story for you, and then we'll get started. I'm from Baltimore, so I'm a diehard Orioles fan. At Camden Yards, we have this tradition. It's an awesome tradition, in my opinion. The beginning of the second-to-last stanza of the anthem says, Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? Regardless of whether the anthem is being uh, sung or played by solo instruments or a group of instruments, Every fan in the stadium shouts, oh, at the beginning of that line. We love our team and we love our country. Well, I attended the Durham Bulls game last week. So May 11th at the time of this recording. It's actually my second game of the year. And I thought it would be good to get out of the house as I'm recovering from shoulder surgery. So that's why I went. Um, Coincidentally, the Bulls were playing the Norfolk Tide that night, which is the Orioles AAA affiliate. And the anthem started to play. We, we stood up, put our hands over our heart, and I had an internal conflict. I actually began to sweat a little. And I'm a big guy, so I'm sweating already, but so you can imagine. I'll just, I'll just leave that to your imagination. So I had an internal struggle here. Do I represent my Orioles? Do I run the risk at being at an away ballpark as coming across like a disrespectful tool? So right before this infamous Baltimore stanza, I decide to remain silent. I opened my mouth right before that line and nothing came out. But something did come out of someone's mouth about a section over and it was the highest pitched O I've ever heard. And all the fans just kind of looked real quick and then looked back to the flag. This kid had some guts, and here I am, a 35-year-old male, just hung him out to dry. Moral of the story? Well, there isn't one, because I'm good, but that kid is going to get a whooping and grounded for life for what he did, because his parents were embarrassed. All right, Wrigley Field. It's one of the most historic and popular ballparks in professional sports. I've yet to go to the stadium. I haven't been there before. Hopefully, I go one day. Um, but beside the, aside from the roaring crowd and the winding ivy and the game that's going on on the inside of the walls, I want to kind of direct your attention to what's going on the outside of the walls. For the na- past 90 years, there's been a troop of men armed with gloves and determination. Patiently listening for that one sound that calls them into action, the crack of the bat. They call themselves the ball hawks. So in order to better understand this topic, we need to talk baseballs. Not just the sport of baseball, but the actual ball that that we use in the game. So since the mid-1840s, the baseball has gone through a a, a ton of different changes. I'm sure you can look up on the internet and just type in baseball and see all the different iterations of what it looked like, the size, 
the leather, the lack of the leather, just what they all look like. Um, I'm sure some were even wrapped in very loose brown leather that almost looked like like a pouch of some sort. Uh, some sort. So these changes from the baseball weren't always necessarily out of necessity. It was just all they could find was those materials at that time. You know, so they they did with what they had. So a man named Doc Adams, uh, who many consider to be one of the founding fathers of baseball, was elected the president of the Knickerbocker Baseball Club in 1846. He was the first one who played the position of short fielder, better known as shortstop. The early Knickerbocker baseball was very light. That it can't, it actually couldn't be thrown in from the outfield. So if someone crushed the ball, knocks off the wall, outfielder gets it, he had to throw it to the short fielder. Okay, side note, hit your cutoff. Just throw the ball at the cutoff's head on a line and your job is done and it's up for the short uh, the, the cutoff to determine to let it go. Actually, the player behind him decides whether to let it go or catch it and throw to whatever base is being instructed. Okay, all right, so back to it. So they had to have this short fielder grab the ball and then throw it the rest of the way into the infield. That was of necessity. And they could throw the ball as hard as they could and throw their arm out, but it just wasn't going to get there. One reason for the light baseballs was Adams had a hard time getting balls made, finding the right material to give it a proper weight. He actually made the balls for himself, um, by himself actually, for about seven years. He couldn't even find someone to do it for money. But eventually, the balls became easier to manufacture. And the short fielder, who actually played the part of like a rover in your co-ed softball leagues, uh, he moved into the infield and became the shortstop. So originally, I think, I didn't do that much research on this, as you just assumed, that there were three infielders, first, second, and third, and then the shortstop came in to uh, fill in an extra gap. So anyway, these balls became very valuable. And one of the main reasons why they were valuable is because there wasn't a lot that existed at the time. And so what happens is when there was a ball game, whoever won the game got to keep the ball. So if you didn't win, you don't have a ball, and so you can't schedule a game or play a game. You are at the mercy of whoever had the ball. So by, say, 1915, a dozen balls cost $15. And that's equivalent to $366 today. So these were, again, very coveted baseballs. The actual, uh, let's let me read this here real quick, the stat. The MLB goes through approximately 10 dozen balls a game. That's close to $4,000 spent on just balls. During 1915, however, they would try to use one ball a game. When a ball would go over the fence and into the crowd or you know, foul territory, everyone was on watch duty. Even law enforcement was involved. They needed to get that ball back. Okay, They would grab the ball, find it wherever it was, and put it back into play. Enter Ruben Berman. Okay, May 16th, 1921. Berman was at a New York Giants-Cincinnati uh, Reds game. At one point, there was a foul ball. Came Berman's way and he snagged it. As was the custom at that time, the stadium uh, attendant, I'll put that in quotes because it was probably law enforcement, kind of like security, they instructed Berman to hand the ball over and he refused. And do you remember that movie? I love it. Angels in the Outfield, where uh, Knox comes out at the beginning of the movie and the pitcher Gates, he goes to pull him and he asks, Knox asks for the ball and then Gates decides to 
throw it away and then throw his glove as well and they start fighting. Well, Berman did that. He actually tossed the ball over his head and it disappeared in the crowd. And they were so upset, they actually took Berman into the main field's um, office. And all they really did was slap him on the wrist and send him home. But interesting other side note is, I read in one case, this is actually in a book called Baseball by Zach Campbell, and we'll get to Zach Campbell later on, is there was a child about 10 or 11 years old who caught a ball and he didn't want to give it back, so they detained him. And that's how serious this was. We need that baseball. All right, so what did Berman decide to do after he was slapped on the wrist, embarrassed? He decided to sue. He said he felt publicly humiliated. And you know what's funny? It's not that much different than today. You can, you know, you can sue for just getting your feelings hurt. Anyway, I digress. The court ruled in Berman's favor, and he was awarded $100. The court rules that Berman had a right to the foul ball that he caught. Therefore, Rubin's rule was instituted. Now, although some managers at that time had already started letting the fans keep the balls, like the manager for the Cubs, this slowly became something that was, what's the word I'm looking for? A a custom. It was something that managers allowed fans to do. So what makes these balls so valuable? It's the experience. It's the excitement. It's the story that cocoons the retrieving of the ball. When I was growing up, my brother and I, we'd always play baseball in the backfield. My sister would kind of just eat snacks and watch us. But we used whatever we could find to play. Usually it was a tennis ball and a wooden bat. Sometimes I played stickball with a racquetball. Um, of course, we play wiffle ball. And actually, wiffle ball is a lot more competitive nowadays. I even used a lacrosse ball once. If I can remember. Yeah, I used a crawl. And, and I don't rem- recommend this because that thing hurts no matter where it hits you. Let's go ahead and take a little break and see if you can connect with this knuckleball. Welcome to Knuckleball Trivia, the part of the show in which I ask you a riddle or question and you have until, let's go Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern time to answer it because not everybody will listen to the podcast as soon as it's released. Give you the weekend to to think about it and listen to it. So with this question, you're going to have to track with me. Uh, There's some context to this question. All right, here we go. And pardon me as I actually, I wrote this down, so I'm going to read it. In 1978, the MLB instituted the commemorative baseball. Now, a commemorative baseball was one in which a particular milestone or player was honored or celebrated. The ball was stamped with a design logo. Most of these commemorative balls were never used in the game. However, some of them were. So, here's here's the question. Name the player that was honored on the first ever in-game commemorative baseball. So this baseball was actually used in the game. So what was the name of the player, the athlete, who was on the first commemorative baseball that was actually used in the game? So don't forget, 6 p.m. Monday, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern, and that'll be the Monday following the release of this episode, which is Friday. Um, So have your answers by then. Please tweet them to me, at Ball and Mitt. I also have a Facebook page. I'm very active on both of those, so I encourage you to interact with me. Uh, Send your answers that way. Uh, I won't tell you until you're right or wrong. Um, We'll wait for Monday for that. But I want you guys to be involved in the show. And there you have it. Okay, that's the end of our Knuckleball Trivia. So as we spoke about earlier, the baseball is a very coveted novelty. I, I still haven't caught one yet. 
and maybe eventually. Now with all the nets being put up, I understand safety, but it does uh, dwindle the chances of catching a ball. But there are those who have caught hundreds, even thousands of baseballs in their life. And when I say caught, I mean with their glove by tracking it down, which often involved a scrum. I can't believe it's taken me this long to discover this documentary narrated by Bill Murray. It's called Ballhawks. Just watched it, I think, last week. It's a great film, and it actually encouraged me to look further into this ball hawk idea. I encourage you to, to watch it as well. It's a really great film. So the dictionary defines a ball hawk as this. A skilled ball player, in particular a football or basketball player, adept at stealing or intercepting the ball, or an outfielder in baseball skilled at catching fly balls. So they can track a ball down and retrieve it. So it, inv- it involves skillfully tracking it down, snagging it before it hits its mark, whether that's another person, the ground, outside the wall, wh- wherever the ball is going, the goal of the ball, you intercept it. So a cornerback has a sense of when and where the ball is going to go, and he grabs it, he's a ball hawk. A baseball player that snags the ball before it hits the grass or before it goes over the wall, he's a ball hawk. Now let's keep this definition in mind as we move forward with the conversation because we're going to take ball hawk and put it into a, a different context. So I, I mentioned Wrigley Field um, earlier. At the begin, at the corner of Wayland and Kenmore, right beyond the right field bleachers of Wrigley Field, stood this extension of the Cubs outfield. Okay, these men were dedicated baseball fans. They loved baseballs and the experience of of collecting them, of waiting for them and getting them. This veteran group, and let's see, it's Mo Mullins. He's been ball hawking since 1958. He's caught over 6,000 baseballs, and he's still at it today. Uh, when he was younger, this is interesting, he would catch a, b- a baseball, sell it for 50 cents, and then go and buy a hamburger and a Coke. So he's already, he's already got a job. Good for him. Another popular ball hawk is Super Dave Davison. He's been doing it for 30 years. Um, he also sells his baseballs for those who want to buy it, and then also turns them into jewelry and sells right there on the street. He is actually known for snagging David Ross's 100th career home run. He even has a limited edition bobblehead made in his likeness. I would love to have a bobblehead of me. I just, I, I love those things. Or those little pop vinyl uh, figurines of like TV shows and movies. They're cool. Uh, I wanted to get a Rocky Balboa one, but they're like 75 bucks is limited edition. They don't sell them long enough where you can pick one up. Anyway, completely off topic. So these guys were passionate and they were good at what they did. So that was then, as far as where it started about 90 years ago, the following story that I tell you is how it is now. Ball hawking has morphed into something very different. From where I'm sitting, it looks as though a ball hawk is someone who merely receives a ball. It's either given to him or her. Now, now don't get me wrong. Today's ball hawks will grab the ball. They'll catch them. They'll get the home runs and the foul balls, whether it's in BP or during the game. The, the old timers did this as well. So I'm not going to take that away from you if that's your, your skill. But I think anyone can see that it's it's not the way it used to be. So here's my approach. I understand. I don't know what it's like during the early days of Mo Mill and Super Dave and the others. I only know what I've watched and researched today. But from what I've seen, I don't care for it. So I, I asked you a couple minutes ago to remember the definition of a ball hawk in the context of the sport of baseball. It's something that is earned. It's something that occurs in a single moment in which you adjust and react with a positive result. Or sometimes negative, but hopefully positive. I've seen a lot of YouTube videos, news clips, and articles written about fans 
uh, I'll put that in quotes, going to great lengths just to receive a ball, not to intercept one, but just to receive it. So certain fans will enter the stadium as soon as the gates open to attend BP uh, for its full duration for both teams. That's fine. That's great. It's fun. The Watching the pros crush baseballs, there's nothing wrong with that. It's exciting. The kids love it. But with the bleachers particularly empty, there's not much intercepting going on. It's just like karaoke. You just follow the bouncing ball. Others will ask for a ball from a player or coach, and this is completely fine. I'd even do this if I was given the opportunity, but it's not part of ball hawking. So, so those that are doing this are calling themselves ball hawks. I, I think those are just fans wanting to get a ball. It's, it's different. I'm making the distinction. There's, there's no story with these methods. As I mentioned, of course, for younger fans, it's a blast. It's a wonderful memory. But those younger fans don't consider themselves ball hawks. So these, these rules don't apply. So then, as I mentioned earlier, there's this gentleman by the name of Zach Hampel, self-proclaimed ball hawk extraordinaire. He's a very controversial character in the sport of baseball and fandom in general. On August 29th, 2017, Zach collected his 10,000th baseball. 10,000. Now, I don't know Zach personally. All I know is what's publicized about him and and doing research. I read the good articles. I read the bad articles, watched some videos. I want to try to not be super subjective about this. I actually have his book called Baseball. In fact, it's one of my sources for this episode. He obviously, he loves baseball. He's got a deep knowledge of the sport. And I don't know his background or where he came from. So I'm not here to judge. It's not my job. But he is one of the front runners in this modern day ball hawking. However, again, referencing back to the ball hawk definition earlier and giving you the historical flyby that's happened at uh, Waveland Avenue, I'd like to conclude that Zach Campbell and the many others that aspire to, to do what he does and be like him, they're not ball hawks. That is my thesis. Hample can catch a ball. There are several videos of him running around the stadium tracking balls and catching them. He has an ability, a skill, if you will. But a ball hawk uses his skill within a competition, in the moment, as it occurs in real time. Zach and his merry men fabricate this. They cheat the system. Here's five points. There's a huge difference between being inside the stadium two hours in advance with no competition and waiting outside the stadium walls with other men just as uh, determined as you are. You are free to roam with no repercussions. You get every ball that comes. At this point, you're just collecting balls. You're picking up the garbage, for a lack of a better term. There's no effort. Second point. Asking for baseball should be against the rules. Again, in the context of calling yourself a ball hawk, if there are kids who are dying to get a ball, they get one and they go away happy, that's awesome. I love to see a smile on a kid's face when they get a baseball. If you ever watch any game, the cameraman will zone in on where the foul ball went. And there's so many stories about um, someone getting a ball, giving it to a kid, and, and they've just made that kid's day. That's awesome. But asking for baseballs that you couldn't or didn't catch disqualifies you. If a player throws you a ball, that's not ball hawking. You're just playing catch. Number three, here's a good one. Hample created this device to grab balls that lay at the warning track. So it's a glove that has a pencil inside to kind of prop it open, but then also a rubber band that kind of secures it. And he ties a string at the end of the glove. And and other people have, have copied this idea. I've seen it drops the glove down the field and it catches the ball and he brings it up. At that point, you're just a good engineer. That's not being a ball hog. You're a ball snatcher. Four, 
So baseball has plenty of unwritten rules that you do or don't do out of respect of the player in the game. I'd contend to say that there are some unwritten rules for fans that aren't necessarily illegal. Let's stay away from the illegal ones. One of them being this, stay in your lane. Running around the stadium, tracking down where a hitter is most likely to foul one off or hit the long ball is just, it's, it's obnoxious. I think that's the best word for it. Take a look at the three numbers on your ticket. Section, row, seat, stay put. Five. This one is a bit irritating as well. Bringing a change of clothes that represent both teams playing is straight up being a punk. Deceptively making the players think you are a fan so they can give you your 10th ball before the game even begins is, again, obnoxious. In one instance, uh, Hample, this is interesting. I think it was last year this happened, last summer. Hample asked for a ball from Clayton Kershaw, and he said, no, you've got 7,000 of them. So the story, there was more to the story um, and how the media kind of blew that up, but that's not going to serve my purpose here. The unfortunate thing is that fans, including younger kids, think this type of ball hawking is what the game is about. It's not. It's part of the stadium experience, but not part of the game. Battling it out on the streets of Waveland Avenue after a ball unexpectedly soars over the right field bleachers is ball hawk. That's ball hawking. These guys were ball hawks. You can't talk about this phenomenon without mentioning some of their names. A ball hawk is who you are, not what you do. I had mentioned earlier that Super Dave caught Dave Ross's 100th home run. Well, what did he do with it? He gave it back and got a picture with Dave. And do you know why? Because it was Ross's ball. And Super Dave knew that, recognized that. That was, that was Ross's milestone, his accomplishment. If a player wants his ball, you give it back. If he doesn't, then it's yours. Now, in comparison, Hample called A-Rod's 3,000th hit, which was also a home run. Of all people to catch A-Rod's 3,000th hit, it was Hample. He sat on it for days. He's even on record for saying that A-Rod's hit was his ball and that he, being Hample, earned it. Really? I don't remember seeing you in the box hitting the other 2,999 base hits. Hample also said, people think I'm trying to increase the offer by holding out, but that's not it. It's a very complex situation and the proper procedure should be put in place. I hate to inform you, Hample, it's actually not that complex. You give the ball back, period. Now, I understand he negotiated a contribution from the Yankees to pitch in for baseball. That's a great organization. But there's a better way to go about doing that without holding out and drawing attention to yourself. So I want to steer away from making this about Hample. He's a YouTube sports personality and he isn't going away. And I'm 90% sure that he'd be a cool guy to hang out with, but this, but his type, those retrieving the balls the way he does, they're not ball hawks in my opinion. A ball hawk is something you become. Ball hawking isn't even something that you do necessarily. A ball hawk is something that you are. It's part of you and your character. It's how you see the game and your part in it as a fan. Outside of Waveland Avenue and other parts of the world that I may not be aware of are where the true ball hawks live. Again, I do want to note that what Hample did with pitching for baseball is great. Always great news when a charity is involved. Recently, Kenley Jansen, closer for the Dodgers, came to the aid of a Dutch citizen who is struggling with MS. So Jansen and his uh, brother chose to cover the rest of Amadeo Ellensburg, the rest of his costs, and they'll pay the $72,000 needed to get Ellensburg to Russia for treatment. 
to whom much is given, much will be required. As a baseball fan, as as the human race in general, we are blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. And it appears that Jansen got the memo. I did want to thank uh, Chris Selm for responding on my website about the Pace of Play Rules 2018. Uh, he left a comment there. It's awesome. Interacted with him. Left him a comment. I like that kind of thing. So again, I'm just going to reiterate. Let's try to keep that going and make this an awesome uh, ball make community. And with that, let's wrap it up. Welcome to Three Strikes. This is the part of the show where I give you some life advice and it's either beneficial or maybe it's not. Strike one, take the time to read your children bedtime stories. They will remember those moments forever. It appears that Red's pitcher, Jared Hughes, remembers his favorite story, The Three Little Pigs, because he was huffing and puffing, sprinting from the bullpen. Strike two, if you're having trouble with something embarrassing in your life, like an awkward moment or a nickname you don't like, embrace it, like Sean Doolittle. Because his Twitter handle of what would do do is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Strike three. If you do not go full force in celebrating National Pretzel Day every April 26th, please unsubscribe from the podcast. That's strike three, and I'm out. See ya! Well, folks, that's a wrap. This has been a Ball and Mint Podcast production. Take a gander at our website and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Farewell, baseball fans.